With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. And before we get started with today's case, I do want to give it a little bit of a trigger warning, as well as discuss a few things. This case involves domestic violence, and I know that I have many listeners of the podcast who are domestic abuse survivors. Also, I am sure that there are individuals who are still trying to find their way out of their current situation that they are living in. I first want to offer some resources for those who may be in need of them. The website, thehotline.org, is an incredible resource and is a national domestic violence hotline. On their website, you will find resources broken down by the state that you live in. There is also a live chat feature available for anyone who wants to utilize that route. You can also call 1-800-799-7233, or you can text the word START to 88788. All of these resources will be listed in the description of this episode, so it's easily accessible for anyone who may be in need. I also want to talk about some of the statistics of domestic violence. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. This includes a range of behaviors from slapping, shoving, pushing, and more. One in seven women and one in 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. This includes beating, burning, and strangling. When people think about domestic violence, we often think about women being the victims. This episode actually focuses on a male victim. According to Mankind.org, half of male victims fail to tell anyone that they are victims of domestic abuse and are two and a half times less likely to tell anyone than a female victim. 11% of male victims have considered taking their life due to partner abuse. Here at Crimeaholics, we try and focus on cases and topics that need more light shined on them. And this is why for today's episode, I decided to focus on a male domestic violence victim. Men absolutely can be victims too. So without further ado, let's jump in. Randall Ferguson, or Randy as all of those who loved him called him, was an extremely family-oriented person. Growing up, he and his sisters were extremely close. Randy decided to join the Navy after high school, and after his stint in the military when he finally got out in the 80s, Randy let his hair grow out and really fit that 80s rocker vibe. 
He remained close with his sisters and their growing families and would do family dinners together with them on every Sunday. At some point, Randy decided it was time to lose the long locks and cut off his hair, and he began trying to move forward in his life with a new level of professionalism. He was hired on at Boeing as a machinist, where he was making a really good income. He was a single man living a minimalist life. He lived above someone's garage in an apartment and saved all of his money. Randy, though, was extremely giving. If anyone in his family was in need, he was the first to step up and help them financially with whatever it was. Despite all of Randy's amazing qualities, he never settled down with anyone and he never found love. Even though he was at this point in his life that he was ready to settle down, he wanted all of those things that I think most of us dream about. He wanted the wife, the house, and the kids. In the year 2000, Randy's sister, Lisa Moore, was living in Puyallup, Washington with her husband and three children. Around the same time every single day, she would walk down to the mailbox, and it was on one of those days that she spotted a new face to the neighborhood. A woman with long, dark hair who was very pretty. The two women ended up striking up a conversation while checking the mail, and she introduced herself to Lisa as Angela Phillips. Angela had told Lisa that she was a nurse who had just moved into the house a few down from her. She had stated that she was a single mom of four. Angela had four children with her high school sweetheart. The couple had never married, and after their youngest child struggled with some health issues, they ended up separating and going their own ways. Angela was originally from Washington, and that is where she had met the father of her children. But after their split, she ended up dating and marrying a car salesman. She and her kids moved out of state, but it wasn't long before their marriage would end and Angela would find herself back in Washington. Despite having the help from the children's father, financially, Angela was struggling. Lisa had felt that Angela was exactly the type that Randy would go for. She was clearly hardworking, she was a single mother, and she had such a bubbly and bright, enthusiastic personality. Over their meetings at the mailbox, Lisa tells Angela all about her brother. She tells her that he was 40 years old, extremely family-oriented, and he was wanting to settle down and have a family of his own. This level of maturity and drive and thought of a family man was exactly what the 34-year-old single mother wanted. So Lisa ends up inviting Angela over for a barbecue, and she and the rest of the family sat back and watched as Randy and Angela began chatting. They hit it off really well, and it was very apparent that Randy was extremely interested in Angela. Within days, the two were officially a couple, and they seemed so happy. Lisa would watch as Randy would pull up to Angela's home. Angela would then rush out all excited and would be jumping on him, hugging, and kissing. After six months or so of dating, Randy dipped into his life savings to purchase a home that was big enough to fit all four of Angela's children. The situation was almost picture-perfect for Randy. He wanted a family so badly, and it didn't bother him that Angela had four kids of her own. He embraced it, which on July 1st, 2001, not even a year after they began dating, Angela announced that she was pregnant. According to Angela's daughter in a snapped episode on her mom, Randy doted on Angela when she was pregnant. He would do anything for her. 
He was so excited to be a father and he would make sure to run out at any given time that Angela had a craving to pick her up some food. In late September, Randy and Angela would officially tie the knot. And a few months later, Angela would give birth to their baby, which was a little girl that they named Allison. Of course, Randy was an amazing father to her and loved her with all of his heart. Everything seemed to be going really well for the family. In 2005, Angela's oldest daughter, Lisa Marie, and middle daughter, Kristen, were beginning families of their own. Her 18-year-old son, Claude, was talking about joining the Marines, and he really looked up to Randy and asked him for advice and guidance on joining the military, since Randy had also served. As Allison began kindergarten, Angela decided to begin working again. She started working at a local warehouse, and the work-family life balance seemed to be going really well for everyone. Everyone recalls this blended family seeming perfect. The neighbors said that they all spent time together for the holidays, and they did barbecues, they celebrated birthdays, and had bonfires. Again, everything was perfect. Until March 23rd, 2006. Angela Ferguson showed up at the Pierce County Sheriff's Office with a stack of homemade missing persons flyers with information about her husband. She wanted to file a missing persons report. She had stated that her husband of five years was missing and that the last time that she had seen him was on the evening of March 22nd. She said that day, Randy got off of work at 1.30 p.m. like any other day. She stated that they had met up at the mall and grabbed dinner at a drive-thru and then headed home around 3.30 or 4 p.m. She said while eating dinner, Randy got upset at their daughter for messing off during dinner and Allison had accidentally hit her dad in the face with one of her toys. Which this upset Randy, of course, and he began yelling at Allison, which then Angela said that she began yelling at him, and he said that he was going to leave, and she told him to go ahead and go. So he did. Angela said that he called one time while he was gone, and during this conversation, she asked him to please come home, and he said that he would be home in a little while. She told detectives that this argument wasn't like them. They didn't argue very much at all. Their marriage was near perfect and they were extremely happy together. She did state that when they did argue on the rare chance that it happened, Randy would usually leave their home and head over to his sister Lisa's house. On the investigation discovery show The Lies That Bind, Lisa talks about how Angela called her to say that he was missing. She told Lisa that they had gotten into an argument and he left. This obviously came as a surprise to Lisa because she knew that he always came to her house when an issue would arise. Lisa tried to call Randy and it went straight to voicemail, which again was unlike Randy. He was a dependable family man. He never let his phone die and he never would turn it off in case someone in his family needed his help. Investigators began their search for Randy. They first began by contacting Boeing to ask them some questions about Randy, and all good things were said about him. He had no work issues and nothing to raise red flags of issues at home. While investigators were doing their work, Angela and the family began doing searches around the area, hoping that they could find Randy. They also hung up the homemade missing persons posters that Angela had made and brought in to the station. Not only was Angela helping hang flyers, she was also making phone calls to all of the news stations requesting and begging that they feature her missing husband. 
The following morning, an individual was driving his morning commute to work in Gig Harbor, which this is about a 26-mile drive from Puyallup, where Randy and Angela lived. The man spotted what looked like exhaust or smoke coming from just off the road down an embankment, and he decided to pull over and check things out. There he found a car that was still running, but it appeared that nobody was inside. The car had appeared to have gone off the road down an embankment and rested towards the bottom with the front of the car against some trees. He called it in and when the police arrived on scene, they realized that the car actually matched the description of Randy Ferguson's car. After running the plates, they confirmed that it was Randy's. They taped off the scene and began searching around the vehicle. Nobody was inside of the car, but outside they found a bleach bottle as well as the faceplate of a stereo. They began searching further around the car to see if maybe possibly Randy was injured somewhere. The car had seemed to have gone off the road, so maybe he had crawled out of it somewhere else and was lying injured. But there was no sign of Randy. They decided to pop the trunk to see if there was anything left behind in there. When they opened the trunk, officers were hit with an overwhelming smell of bleach. And also inside of the trunk was Randy Ferguson, deceased. Detectives were immediately called in and they pulled the car out and took it in for forensic evaluation. Once they were able to remove Randy's body from the trunk, they were able to determine that he had suffered two gunshot wounds to the head, one to each temple. The first thing that investigators began thinking was that this was potentially a carjacking gone wrong. This isn't something obviously that is uncommon, but when they began looking closer at the inside of the car, they noticed the lack of blood. And most of us know that with head wounds, they bleed a lot. So this scenario seemed unlikely. Also, the fact that the bleach had been poured on Randy. It was apparent that someone was trying to clean something up or hide some kind of evidence that they didn't want found. Someone had killed Randy Ferguson somewhere else and stuffed his lifeless body inside of the trunk. When looking at the scene where Randy's car had been found and the condition in which the car was in, there was minimal damage done to the actual car itself. Yes, the car had stopped against a tree, but you would assume that if it was driven down the embankment at some sort of speed, that it would have been more damaged from the impact of the tree. It appeared that the car had been pushed down the embankment, opposed to being driven off the road. On March 25th, investigators gave the news to Angela that Randy had been found dead. She had the emotions that you would expect any wife to have. She screamed, she cried, she fell to the ground, pounding her hands on the pavement. And she kept saying, he can't be dead, he's coming back. With them ruling out the carjacking, police were struggling to find a motive. Randy was just your average guy. Nobody had anything bad to say about him. It wasn't long after the news of Randy's murder that the phone lines began ringing with information. And to investigators' surprise, the callers were neighbors of the Fergusons. They had stated that they had heard the news about Randy. But the way in which Angela was acting had seemed almost staged and phony. 
She was saying things to them like, I love him. I can smell him on me. Don't sit in his chair. He's coming back. They also told investigators that they had more recently noticed things between Randy and Angela weren't as good as they once were. The neighbors are the ones that I stated earlier were all fairly close to Randy and Angela. During the summer months, they would sit around the bonfire, they would chat, and they would have drinks. They began seeing less and less of Randy and more and more of Angela. Anytime that there was ever any kind of family issues, Angela would rush to the neighbors to air out all of the drama. Angela had told her neighbors that the marriage wasn't working, they were no longer sleeping together, and she told Randy that she wanted a divorce. But one thing that really got investigators' attention was when several neighbors had stated that when Randy would leave the house or was out of town, a man would come and visit. They stated that Angela had introduced this man to the neighbors as her friend Lamont, and the two had met each other and became friends at work. It wasn't much later that police got a call from Randy's sister, Lisa. She had stated that Randy's daughter, Allison, had been staying with her because Lisa had wanted to make things a little easier on Angela. During the time that Allison was there with Lisa, she had said a few things that were a little bit disturbing to her. Allison had told her Aunt Lisa that a bad man with a gun had shot her dad. They were concerned that maybe four-year-old Allison had witnessed something, so they had her come into the Children's Center to be interviewed. And if you're not familiar with these kind of child interviews, they do it in a way that they play with them and in a play setting. They allow the kids to play while they talk, and the interviewers just guide the kids gently in conversation. During the interview, little Allison had talked about how her dad was in heaven and that a bad person had shot him. When asked if she had seen anything, she made a statement that she was in bed. Though Allison couldn't help identify who the person was that shot her dad, she did, however, help investigators piece together the where. If Allison had been in bed, that can only mean one thing. The shooting occurred at home. They also had asked Allison about Lamont. She had said that he did come over to the house sometimes, but it was never when her daddy was home. She had told the interviewer that Lamont coming over was also a secret that she had to eat, and she wasn't allowed to talk about it with anyone but her mommy. Allison tells them that Lamont is a very nice man, and he's very nice to her, and in the days before her daddy was killed, Lamont had whispered a secret to her that he was going to take care of her and her mommy. It was at this point that Lamont jumped to the top of the suspect list. Before they were able to bring Lamont in for questioning, they got another phone call that was of extreme interest to them. Angela's ex and the father of her four children, Clyde III, called in saying his son, Clyde IV, had been taking Randy's death extremely hard. But he tells investigators that he feels that his son's behavior about the death of Randy is more than just sadness and grief. Claude IV kept telling his father he was scared and something along the lines about snitches end up in ditches. But when asked if he knew anything about Randy's murder, he kept saying no. Investigators brought Claude IV in for questioning, and it was clear to them that Claude knew something, but he wasn't going to give anything up. 
When asked about Lamont, he had stated that his mother and him were girlfriend and boyfriend, but then he kind of retracted it and said, or maybe they're just friends, I'm not sure. They were able to track down Lamont and bring him in for questioning. He had stated that him and Angela were having an affair, but Angela had always said that she and Randy were going through a divorce and that they were separated and late and that they were separated and Randy lived in an apartment by himself. Lamont provided as much information that he could to investigators, and when investigators told him about what had happened to Randy and the fact that Randy and Angela, in fact, were not going through a divorce, Lamont was shocked. He had no idea, and he told investigators he absolutely, 100%, was not involved. And the investigators believed him and felt that he was being truthful. And it was at this point that investigators began honing in on the one person they were starting to believe could have wanted Randy dead, Angela. Detectives called Lisa to speak with her further about her brother and his relationship with his wife. Lisa had admitted that it wasn't long after he began dating Angela that she realized what a mistake it was to introduce the two of them to each other. Lisa let it all hang out. She stated that Angela was an extremely big liar. If her lips were moving, she was lying. She lied about the most minimal things and, of course, big things as well. Lisa told investigators that early in 2006, Randy had been actually talking about leaving Angela, and he asked his sister for assistance in finding the best divorce attorney out there, and one that is known to help win custody battles for fathers. She also admitted that when they were dating, she received a letter in the mail that had no return address. And in this letter, it stated that the person writing was a lead investigator for a reputable private investigation firm. And they were investigating crimes committed by Angela. And it stated that she often preyed on men with money and then leave them in financial devastation. Randy had also received the same letter, but he chalked it up to the jealous ex-boyfriend trying to ruin things for them before the wedding. Lisa, on the other hand, had always felt uneasy by this letter, and she ended up keeping it in a safe place, not knowing that someday down the road she was going to need it. With things with Angela looking more and more questionable by the minute, investigators obtained a search warrant for her home. Officers had previously been inside of the home just after Randy had gone missing, and they didn't see anything of interest at that point. And if Randy had been killed in his own home, like they believed due to Allison's statement, the mess had to have been thoroughly cleaned up. While the home was being searched, investigators got a call that Angela's son, Claude IV, wanted to speak to them again. Claude would come forward with some very serious information. He told investigators that he was asleep and he woke to his mom screaming and shaking him, saying he had to get up and that the gun had just gone off. He followed his mom into the room and saw Randy sitting in a computer chair. He stated that it appeared that Randy was asleep, but he had blood coming from his nose and ear. Claude said that his mom had said it was a complete accident. Angela told her son that they both were going to be in trouble if he didn't help dispose of Randy. The two of them drug Randy still in his computer chair down the stairs and out into the garage. 
In the garage was Randy's parked car. They took him to the back of the car and shoved his lifeless body into the trunk of his very own car. Claude said that when they went back into the house, Angela began frantically cleaning things up and he went to his room to lay down because he felt sick with worry and he didn't know what to do. After his interview, investigators arrested Claude and booked him in jail for rendering criminal assistance. The search warrant was still being conducted back at the Ferguson home, so investigators called those back at the house to let them know where Claude had said this all had taken place. They went to the computer room and began searching. The carpet was surprisingly very clean. It was a very light tan color, which came as a surprise because there was no trace of blood until they peeled back the carpet. They were able to find soaked into the pad of the carpet a significant amount of blood. They were also able to locate a small shell casing that was consistent with the weapon that they believed had murdered Randy Ferguson. Authorities arrested Angela and brought her in. During their interrogation, Angela came out and said that she and Randy were having a fine day until they were finished with dinner. She told him that their daughter Allison had head lice again and that she needed his help cleaning her hair. At this point, Angela claimed that Randy got mad and began yelling at her, telling her that she was a bad mom and he was sick and tired of it. She said that Randy told her that he was going to take Allison from her and get custody and that she would never see her daughter again. This was when Angela went to the trunk of her car and retrieved a gun. She tells investigators that she was going to use it, but she couldn't because she was so scared and she didn't really want to hurt him. She said that while she was in there holding the gun, she began shaking it towards him while yelling. Randy saw the gun and said, what are you going to do? And this is when she says that she just did it. She shot her husband. As the story would unfold, investigators found out that after Angela went and reported her husband missing, she then drove his car to the Gig Harbor area. Mind you, this is while his dead body was still in the trunk of the car. And she disposed of his body. From there, she called her daughter Lisa Marie to pick her up and give her a ride back home. Lisa Marie was also arrested and charged with rendering criminal assistance. Angela was charged with first-degree murder. Come to find out, Angela had been asking people, including her son Claude, to murder Randy. Claude had chalked it up to his mom just joking while being mad and angry, but clearly this is something that she had thought about, and thought about enough that she went and purchased a gun. And when Angela realized that nobody would do it for her, she took it upon herself to take her husband's life. On October 17, 2007, Angela pleads guilty to first-degree murder. Angela is sentenced to 26 years and 8 months in prison. Angela's children Claude and Lisa Marie plead guilty to rendering criminal assistance. In November of 2007, due to the law in Washington, Angela's children were given suspended sentences and only 10 days of community service, which this seems like absolutely nothing when they helped their mother and knowingly dispose of their stepfather. However, unfortunately, at the time that this took place in the state of Washington, if you rendered criminal assistance and you were a close relative, then it was only a gross misdemeanor instead of a felony and prison time. 
Randy's sister Lisa was absolutely taken aback by the fact that these two individuals who helped essentially assist in her brother's murder are able to walk free and live their lives freely. She began fighting for change in the law. According to the Daily News, the bill that Lisa helped draft would make it so only children under the age of 18 would receive leniency if they assist a relative with murder. She named this new bill Randy's Law. In 2010, after four years of fighting for change, Randy's Law passed, which made it a felony for adult relatives to render criminal assistance. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that this case is a domestic violence case, and I'm sure you're wondering where that comes into play with what happened here. Since the murder of her brother, Lisa has recently come forward with more information about her brother and his relationship with Angela. The Auburn reporter did a story on Lisa where she discussed the true nature of their relationship. Randy had suffered many years of verbal and emotional abuse. And though we typically think of domestic violence as something that is physical, emotional, psychological, and verbal abuse all fall under the domestic violence umbrella. In the Auburn Reporter article, Lisa states, quote, I watched my brother suffer in shame for years. It was hard for me. I introduced my brother to her. They seemed to have it all together in the beginning, but I quickly learned I had made the biggest mistake of my life. She was controlling, manipulative, and jealous, end quote. She states that Angela's relentless harassment psychologically and emotionally reduced her brother to nothing. She claims that Randy was beaten down and his self-esteem was crushed. Since the tragedy, Lisa and her husband has adopted Randy's daughter, Allison, and is raising her as their own. Lisa also volunteers as a victim advocate and is an impact public speaker who started a support group for male victims of domestic abuse. She also does various different speaking events to talk about and bring awareness to male domestic violence victims. Lisa states that it has been a struggle to get it across to society that women can be abusers too. Men are often ashamed to come forward to even state that they are victims. Lisa's goal and mission now is to bring awareness to male victims and to make it less of a taboo thing to talk about. Men feel like they can't be victims because they're supposed to be big, brave, strong men, but that's simply not true. Again, if you or anyone you know is in need of any kind of help, please check the description of this episode to find various different resources. Please know that you are not alone and you do not deserve to be treated anything less than amazing. If you are not already a part of our private Facebook group, you can find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share pictures and all information pertaining to the cases that we cover. We also encourage everyone to share all things true crime. Also, if you haven't already followed us, you can follow us on TikTok and Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Crimeaholics, that is all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. (music) 